0: Good morning. Um, I think a round of applause for Jill first for the longest Bible reading in church history. uh, yeah, they, normally, if I'm preaching on two chapters, Genesis 40 and 41, and, and the story kind of just takes those two chapters. Normally, you can leave out a good chunk. There'll be a genealogy in there or something like that. But unfortunately, it wasn't really a lot we could drop. So thank you to Jill. A couple of points of clarification uh, before we start. Jim said that as part of this global thing, I'm going to be creating some beautiful, flashy infographics. I promised infographics. <laughs> Nothing about beautiful or flashy. And secondly, um, this space boot thing. Um, I thought I'd explain it now, otherwise most of you will be spending the entire time I'm standing up here thinking, "I wonder what's wrong with his leg." Um, four and a half weeks ago, I walked into our bathroom, and my little toe stayed outside of the bathroom as I caught it on the frame. Uh, it hurt quite a lot. It broke, and so I've got to wear this for another two weeks. And hopefully, all will be okay after that. So, if I'm limping a little bit, that is why. Um, this is the third in the series. Um, of uh, looking at Joseph. Uh, Dave started us off a fortnight ago from big dreams to a deep hole. And Steve looked last week at sex and seduction. If you've missed either of those, you can listen back online or subscribe to our podcast at oasiswaterloo.org slash church slash sermons and i'm looking at genesis 40 and 41 now we ended last week's episode with joseph being thrown in jail for a crime he didn't commit which is a bit of a cliffhanger isn't it and the title i've been given as you can see there is joseph from prison to prime minister which kind of gives the ending away a bit doesn't it kind of spoils the plot a bit. Um, it's Steve's fault. Uh, He picked the titles. It is a good job, I was thinking as I was preparing this, that he didn't write the titles for Star Wars. Otherwise, instead of The Empire Strikes Back, we'd have had Star Wars. Luke finds out that Darth Vader is his father. (laughs) Anyway, um, moving on, Um, a short recap of the story so far. In the beginning of the story, Jacob and his 12 sons are introduced, of which one is Joseph. Joseph's brothers are jealous of him for his coat of many colors, a symbol of their father's preference for him. Joseph has dreams, and it is clear from these dreams that he is destined to rule over them. To get rid of him and prevent the dreams from coming true, they attempt fratricide, and then they sell Joseph as a slave to some passing passing Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. Uh, Back home, his brothers, led by Levi and accompanied by their wives, break the news to Jacob that Joseph has been killed. They show his tattered coat smeared with his blood, which is actually goat's blood, as proof that what they say is true Uh, In Egypt, Joseph is the slave of Egyptian millionaire Potiphar. He rises through the ranks of slaves and servants until he is running Potiphar's house. When Mrs. Potiphar makes advances, Joseph spurns her, but the jilted Mrs. Potiphar... Claims to her husband that Joseph had attempted to seduce her, and an outraged Potiphar throws Joseph in jail. It's funny that Jill mentioned singing because that was actually the synopsis of Act One of the popular West End musical *Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat* that I just read out to you there. But fortunately for us today, they stick pretty close to the original story. So, what are we going to talk about this morning? Um, we've got prisons, we've got dreams, and in Joseph, as the title of this talk suggests, we've got one of the greatest come back since Wales scored 17 points in the last five minutes to beat Scotland in the 2010 Six Nations. Um, So we're going to start by looking at the passage itself. There's a fair bit in it, and we're just going to pull out a few bits. The first thing that we're going to look at is dreams. This story can sound a bit ridiculous to us, can't it, in our wonderful postmodern rational 21st century London, looking at dreams and how we interpret them, and then living our lives by those dreams. Uh, It's a good job that I don't live my life by the dreams that I have. Otherwise, a couple of weeks ago, I would have thrown myself off a very tall building, convinced I could fly. Um, But in ancient Egypt, it was much more important than that, hugely important. Interpretation of dreams were an important thing in Egypt and much of ancient literature. So when, as we read in chapter 40, the cupbearer and the baker are sad because of their dreams, this would actually have been a fairly normal occurrence Joseph tells them that God has the explanation to their dreams, one good, one bad. And when the chief cupbearer, one with a good dream, leaves prison and goes back to his job, as he leaves, he tells Joseph that he'll put a good word in for him with the boss. Sadly for Joseph, it turns out the cupbearer wasn't exactly being honest when, as he walked out, he said, yeah, yeah, I'll remember you to the boss. I like to think about this as that kind of end of a date that's been pretty awkward, where you say, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, we should definitely do this again sometime. I'll call you. Um, anyway, it's at the result of this that chapter 41 starts with six, I think, of the most understated words in the Bible. When two full years had passed, two years. The cupbearer has been back in his job for two years, and poor old Joseph has been stuck in jail. Um, I'm not sure that I would have been quite as forgiving as Joseph when the cupbearer finally did remember me, but maybe that's why Andrew Lloyd Webber isn't writing any musicals about me. Um, Anyway, so two full years have passed, and now the pharaoh has some dreams, and our friend the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile and out of the river there came seven cows, sleek and fat and they grazed upon the reeds and then the seven other cows, ugly and gaunt came out of the Nile. Uh, and then the thin cows ate the fat cows. He fell asleep again. He had a second dream about seven heads of corn that were thin uh, that uh, were uh, healthy and good and they were growing on a single stalk. After them seven other heads of grain sprouted and the thin heads of grain swallowed the sp- healthy, full head. So the chief cupbearer says to the pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Finally, into this comes Joseph. Now, the thing to say is that everything in those verses would have troubled the pharaoh, even the fact that those came out of the river Nile. Um, The Nile wasn't just a river, it was a powerful political symbol. Whoever controlled the Nile, controlled Egypt, the Nile was a symbol of life, of the power of the empire. But in the Pharaoh's dream, it symbolised death. The thin cows, who caused the death, came out of the Nile. So we have a Pharaoh in turmoil, probably convinced he's just days away from a challenge to his throne, and trying to keep his close friends close. Paranoid that it might be one of those who's going to overthrow him, or maybe the challenge will come from outside, but. Can I tell those who are close to me what I'm feeling and how I'm thinking? Because if I show weakness to them, maybe it'll be one of those who will come and challenge me. So this is what's going on for the pharaoh when he calls forward the man that he previously threw in jail. The man whose life he spared after the alleged affair with his wife. Dream interpreter. The man who's going to save the pharaoh's life. Now the thing about these dreams, though, is that the dreams themselves... Aren't that important to the story? The point of the dreams is to show who Joseph is. In the ancient world, there were people who were meant to be dream interpreters. That was their job. And so if you are a dream interpreter, you have to set yourself up to to kind of be otherworldly, to be different, to stand out so that you look like you are different. You've got something that nobody else has, some kind of power. The more otherworldly these dream interpreters could appear, the better it was to drum up business, basically. But Joseph is different. He's called before the Pharaoh, the most important man in the land, the man who decides whether Joseph will be released from prison or not. And the Pharaoh says, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, I cannot do it. Chapter 41, verse 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I can't do it. I'm not special. There's nothing supernatural about me. I just listen to what God says. Immediately, Joseph is painting himself as being different to the usual dream interpreters. It shows his character. It also shows that he's confident in his ability to hear from God. He steps forward and he interprets the dream. It's seven years of great abundance followed by seven years of famine. What you need is a wise and discerning man to lead the collection of a fifth of the harvest in the years of abundance to get Egypt through the years of famine. Now, the fact that Pharaoh even asks for help is an important development. We have to remember that this is a time when nations could be challenged and wars could be started at the drop of a hat. And the man in charge of a nation had to present himself as all-powerful at all times. He could show no weakness, because if he did, he would be in a battle to hold on to his throne, either fighting off a neighboring country or someone else within his own team who could see the opportunity to gather together an army and start a civil war. So, Pharaoh's going to show the world that he knows everything. That's kind of his job. He has to show that he has a monopoly on knowledge that is nothing that he doesn't know. But then he has these dreams, and he doesn't know what they're about. And his close team, they don't know what they're about either. And the knowledge, the answer to these dreams, lies with the foreigner, Joseph. This knowledge is outside of the empire There's a theologian, Walter Brueggemann, and he says at this moment, the monopoly of knowledge of the empire is broken. The monopoly of knowledge of the empire is broken. The empire no longer has all the knowledge. And what replaces it? Let's look back at verses 33 to 40. Let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man, let him appoint commissioners over the land. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one whom is in the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, you shall be in charge of my palace. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. I put you in charge of the whole of Egypt. This is the beginning of a new era. Suddenly, it's not just about keeping power, keeping all the knowledge This is a different kind of leadership, leadership characterised by a discerning and wise man. So, yeah, the prisoner becomes the prime minister. The lawbreaker becomes the lawmaker. And in doing so, he changes the whole way that government operates. Now, this got me thinking of this guy. This guy called John Lewis. Now, this John Lewis is neither the guy behind this John Lewis Nor is he, this John Lewis, who's a computer science teacher from Virginia in the United States, who many years ago signed up for a new social networking website called Twitter. And when it asked him for his username, he just put his own name in there, and he became at John Lewis, which means that now, every November, he finds himself replying to thousands upon thousands of tweets, congratulating him on his new Christmas ad. But anyway, um, this John Lewis, the one we're going to talk about this morning, is a civil rights activist. He was born in Alabama in 1940 and he became politicized when he attended some workshops on how to protest segregation non-violently, which were given by the Nashville Christian Leadership Council while he was studying theology. He became one of the leaders of the Nashville sit-ins, a non-violent protest against the segregation of restaurants um, in the city. And during those protests, Lewis was arrested and jailed many, many times. He was also one of the original Freedom Riders, which were a group of people who traveled by public bus through the south of the USA after segregation on public buses was deemed to be illegal loads of the southern states still carried on these practices so the freedom riders traveled on these buses to make this point while he was doing this he got beaten up by angry mobs time and time again he got arrested numerous times and he got taken to jail he once spent 40 days imprisoned in the Mississippi State Penitentiary All of this was in his teens and early 20s. And when he was 23, he became the chairman of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. By this time, 23 years old, John Lewis had been arrested 24 times in the nonviolent struggle for equality. SNCC was one of the most prominent of the civil rights organisations, and this meant that the 23-year-old John Lewis became one of the big six, the six civil rights leaders who organised the March on Washington which culminated in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech Um, and then after years of being beaten up firebombed by the Ku Klux Klan being arrested, being thrown in jail on numerous occasions on September the 2nd 1986 he won an election and he became congressman, John Lewis representing Georgia's 5th congressional district 30 years on he's still there from prison to congressman from lawmaker to lawbreaker, from lawbreaker even. (laughs) Do you know that's the second time I've done that? I once said in a talk, because Jesus said it's not the sick that need a doctor, it's the healthy. Hang on a second, I've got that wrong. (laughs) Anyway, moving forward, Um, from prison to congressman, from lawbreaker to lawmaker. A few weeks ago, Lewis posted this, on his Twitter account. 58 years ago today, I was arrested for the first time as a participant in the sit ins at lunch counters in downtown Nashville. Walking out to the paddy wagons, I tried to walk with a sense of pride and dignity. I felt free, I felt liberated, I felt like I crossed over. Hashtag good trouble. Good trouble. Good trouble. And Lewis didn't stop getting into good trouble when he got elected. In 2006 and in 2009, he was arrested outside the Sudan embassy in protest against genocide in Darfur. In 2013, he was arrested again after another sitting, in that time fighting for immigration reform. Good trouble. This week, also in the USA, thousands of students walked out of their schools for 17 minutes in protest at the gun laws which allowed Nicholas Cruz to kill 17 school kids at Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. Because sometimes you've got to push back against the system when the system is wrong. So many of my heroes got into trouble, good trouble, because they pushed back against the system because the system was wrong. Those students, John Lewis, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela... We could go on, couldn't we? And if I'm honest, I wonder if we've lost something along the way. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that we immediately walk out of this door and start breaking laws left, right, and center. But sometimes justice might mean that we get into good trouble because the system is still wrong, and we still need to push back against it. You look at what John Lewis stood up against. And then you look at some of the statistics in the UK today. Black Britons are eight times more likely to be targeted by the police for stop and search than white people. Pupils of black Caribbean descent are permanently excluded from school at three times the rate of white students. The unemployment rate for black, Asian, and minority ethnic people is nearly double that for white Britons. And then if you look a bit wider, some of you will already know this story, but when we had all that snow a few weeks ago, a lady walked three miles through that snow to get to our food bank because she had nothing to eat. She had been on Job Seeker's Allowance and she saw an advert which said she'd be better off if she transferred to Universal Credit, a new type of unemployment benefit. And so she transferred but was deemed ineligible. And while her appeal goes through, which we are helping her with, she has to live on £34. A week. £30 of that will go on rent to avoid her falling into arrears and then becoming homeless. She had absolutely no money on her gas or electric meter. When we had this conversation with her, it was snowing and it was minus two outside. In our advice centre that we run upstairs, we meet people with similar stories every day. There's the man with chronic depression whose claim for a disability benefit was rejected. And in the letter explaining the decision which he brought in to show us, the DWP said he lacks motivation and he cannot be bothered. Chronic depression. There's a lady with eight chronic illnesses whose disability benefits were stopped and it took us ten months to get them reinstated. We won the appeal in the end and a load of that money was backdated. But the stress of that ten months caused her conditions to deteriorate significantly. There's a man I met with narcolepsy. He falls asleep 10 times a day. He was told by his job centre that he had to look for work, even though they agreed he was in no position to get a job. His benefits were cut by £39 a week, which was the money he was spending on food. I met him in the office just upstairs there. It was snowing outside again, and he told me that because he'd had the benefits cut, he would have to try and cope without putting the heating on. The system is still wrong. And we still need to push back against it. This isn't a a party political issue at all. We would be shouting about these things regardless of who was in power. Because partly... It's one of our church's five eyes, the core values that we're always working towards, involvement. We believe that we're invited to partner with God in bringing hope and transformation to all. Our task is to work for this in our own community and for society as a whole, to help to create just and compassionate social, economic, and political structures for the planet and all its people. And I just wonder... If one of the ways to create just and compassionate social, economic, and political structures is by getting involved in just a little bit of good trouble. Because let's look at these big six leaders who all got into trouble. Roy Wilkins had no public faith, but A. A. Philip Randall was the son of a minister who pioneered the use of prayer protests. James Farmer had a theology degree and became interested in pacifism after being inspired by his theology professor, Whitney Young and his wife Margaret were the first black people to join the United Liberal Church. And John Lewis attended the American Baptist Theological Seminary and learned nonviolence at a United Methodist church in workshops taught by two reverends. And finally, number six well, we all know about the Baptist minister, Martin Luther King, but I'll just say one thing after marches and sit-ins to protest segregation in Birmingham, Alabama, Dr. King was imprisoned, and he wrote a letter, later published as the letter from Birmingham jail. I'll read you a section of it. It says about non-violent protests. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Perhaps the south, the nation, and the world are in dire need. Of creative extremists the world is in dire need of creative extremists I think those words still resonate 55 years later the world is in dire need of creative extremists so as we end this morning what does this all mean for us as I said earlier the aim of this talk isn't necessarily that we immediately walk out the door and start breaking the law but maybe maybe it is time for us to think again about the lengths that we are willing to go to for the things that we believe in Steve's talked before about church leaders that he knows who are with us on the issue of LGBT Christianity but refuse to stand up and speak out because it might cost them their job now I I get that, I really do. It's a tough decision when your job brings with it your house and therefore your security, not just for yourself, but for your family again. But but when you choose the simple life, at what cost does that simple life come? We joked this morning about this idea that the last thing that is converted is our wallet. Is that a way that we need to be creatively extreme? Are there areas in your life where you wish you could be braver, act more strongly, stand up against injustice? And what are the reasons stopping you doing that? Like Dr. King, I don't think Jesus calls us to live the easy life, I don't think Jesus calls us to take the easy answer. I think we're called to a radical life, a life that is creatively extreme. I'll just leave you with a question How are we going to get into a bit of good trouble?